Well, good evening. It's good to see you. Glad that you're here to study Zechariah with us. A new day for God's people is the title of our study. And chapter 9 is where we started last week in the new section. And so we'll continue that starting in verse 9. It gets really interesting, 9 through 14. So I know that you're going to enjoy it, and we'll pick back up tonight. So let's have a word of prayer. We just finished up our business meeting for tonight, and we'll dive into God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you tonight for your Word. We thank you for how your Word is truth. It always leads us in the right way and will never lead us into error. And so, Father, I pray tonight the Holy Spirit will be our teacher. Show us what you want us to know as we talk about the coming of the Messiah that would happen 500 years after Zechariah wrote, but God just such wonderful prophecy of a wonderful Savior that you brought for us. So teach us tonight, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, we'll begin with our quiz tonight. Are you ready? See, you didn't have one last week. Everybody got a hundreds, so uh, you'll probably do the same tonight. Six questions, let's ask, all coming from last week, from, uh, from chapter 9. And the first one uh, is not from chapter 9, but it's a layup. We'll start. It's an easy one for you. So we get started off with an easy one. And so write down your answer or think what your answer is. Then we'll go back and look at the the, uh, answers to the questions. Question number one, what does the name Zechariah mean? We'll talk about that in a moment. What does the name Zechariah mean? That's the easy one. So that just kind of gets you loosened up. And then two through six are all from chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Number two, what are the two main divisions of the book? What are the chapters? The first division is different in tone and time period than the second division. What are the two divisions of the book? Separate them by chapters. Question number two. Question number three, who was the military commander we talked about last week who fulfilled the prophecy of chapter nine? The military commander who fulfilled the prophecy of chapter 9 from last week. Question number 4. What was the name of the city and the, or, the, or the island this military conqueror defeated and then burned? What was the name of the city or the island? They're both the same. This military conqueror defeated and then burned. Question number 5. How many cities of the Philistines were there? Remember, the military conqueror left the north, was going to the south, the area of Philistia, and we're told there were a certain number of cities there. How many cities of Philistia were there? Not asking you to name them, that'd be even harder, just how many were there? And then number six, why did this military conqueror not capture and destroy Jerusalem? Remember, he spared it. Why did he spare it? All right, all of those from chapter 9 the previous week. Question number one, what does the name Zechariah mean? Yahweh remembers. I think we all know that by now. Yahweh remembers the people that thought God had forgotten them, but he hadn't. Number two, what are the two main divisions of the book? First division's chapters what? One through eight, exactly right. Second division, nine through 14, absolutely. So one through eight, first division, and nine through 14. Question three, who was the military conqueror who fulfilled the prophecy of chapter 9? Alexander the Great. Absolutely. Interesting story last week about him. Number four, what was the name of the city island this military conqueror defeated and burned? Tyre. Absolutely. T-Y-R-E. It's modern day Lebanon. Tyre. And number five, how many cities of the Philistines were there? 
Five, absolutely. Only four are mentioned because Gath no longer ceased to exist by the time period of Alexander the Great. So five total cities of the Philistines. And then number six, why did the military conqueror not capture and destroy Jerusalem? Had a vision the night before that uh, if he spared Jerusalem, then he would be able to conquer further into Egypt. Exactly right. See there, you did great. How many got all of them? Oh, we got quite a few. All right, that's good. That got every one of the questions right. Very good. All right, let's begin tonight. We'll go to chapters 9, 1 through 9, uh, rather 9, uh, 9 through uh, 14 tonight. First of all, uh, let's look at letter A on your outline, a summary of last week. And you remember as we talked about a summary that as you switch from chapter 8 to chapter 9 of Zechariah, things totally change. 1 through 8, one tone, and 9 through 14, a separate tone. When you go from chapter 8 to chapter 9, you have fast-forwarded about 150 years. So between those two chapters, 150 years, by the time chapter 9 opens, the temple, which the God was just trying to get them to restart building again, has already now been completed. So the mood changes, the outlook changes, the style of the book changes, there's a difference in literary style. It's more poetic. It's not narrative anymore. And really, chapters 9 through 14 resemble the Psalms more than they do the prophets. And so it looks very much like the Psalms. Chapters 1 through 8 is hope and comfort and encouragement. And then chapter 9 opens, and all of a sudden you have war and destruction. And so everything changes starting in 9. 9 becomes a much more cryptic and cosmic and you have all these illusions without any kind of interpretation. So it really becomes different starting in chapter 9. Now we also, once we get to 9 through 14, we saw last week by way of summary that 9, 10, and 11 are different than 13, 14, uh, 12, 13, 14. So three chapters, 9 through 11, three chapters, 12 through 14, and even they're different in their styles. One has 46 verses, one has 44 verses, so they're very similar in length. 9 through 11 talks about the nations around Israel. 12 through 14 talks about Jerusalem. 9 through 11, the exiles return. 12 through 14, no exiles at all. 9 through 11, a strong shepherd motif. Shepherd's not even mentioned in 12 through 14. 9 through 11, no mention of Israel being cleansed. 12 through 14 talks about their cleansing and their holiness and their weeping and their being brought back to the Lord. 9 through 11, a new king will appear who is in power. 12 through 14, a new king appears, but he's pierced, he's killed, he's slain, of course, talking about Jesus to come. So 9 through 11 and 12 through 14 even are different within their own styles. So you'll see that as we go along. Now, last week, Chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, we saw perfectly how Alexander the Great was prophesied. This prophecy written around 520 B.C., and by the time Alexander came, you're talking about 330 B.C., so 200 years after this is prophesied, Alexander the Great fulfilled it perfectly all the way down the, the list. We saw last week Alexander the Great wanted and the Greek kingdom wanted to be the most powerful leader in the world so he attacked Persia who was the most powerful uh, country in the world and in three colossal battles from 334 to 331 BC 
He overtook them, although he was outnumbered 10 to 1. He, they had 10 more troops for his one troop, but due to his brilliant military strategies, such a great engineer that he was, he was able to defeat the Persians. So now he is the one who's the, 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 uh, the ultimate world ruler, and he wants to take in the entire kingdom, the entire known world. So he starts heading south to get to Egypt because they're next. Once he captures Egypt all the way down to India, 10,000 miles Alexander the Great captured in only 12 years, and he would be the, it would, everything would be his kingdom. So he started south, and he marched right across Israel. And so doing in chapter 9, prophesies him doing that. says he'd go from there to Syria, the land of Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath. It's mentioned in verses 1 and 2. That's Syria. So he conquered them. As soon as he finished Syria, he went over to Tyre and Sidon. And we see that starting in verse 3, where he would attack the island, uh, build a causeway out there from previous battles. He would take it, he would burn it, and that would be the, uh, God's judgment upon them in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 9. After that, verse 5, he headed to uh, Philistia, the five cities of Philistia, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashkelon. You see those mentioned there, Ashdod and Gath. And uh, he talked about the pride of Philistia. God would judge them through Alexander the Great. And that's exactly what happened. And then we saw after Philistia, Jerusalem's next, Israel's next. But he had a dream in the night where God showed him, do not attack these people. They're my people. Don't attack them and you will be... He saw that as a good omen then to attack Egypt and he would capture them, which he did. So he spared Jerusalem, was kind to Jerusalem... And the high priest met him out in the, in the countryside, as we talked about last week. And Alexander the Great actually bowed down, which he didn't bow to anybody. He actually bowed down uh, to the high priest of Jerusalem. And, uh, and then we saw where God spared the city. And that's how verse 8 ends, with God sparing um, Jerusalem. Now it's interesting to what God goes to next. I would have expected he kept following Alexander the Great to Egypt. But he didn't. He stayed. While Alexander the Great went south, he stayed with his people. God did. So verses 9 centers upon Jerusalem, not Alexander the Great. So let's go then to letter B on your outline, the coming king of Zion, verses 9 through 13. Next, what God prophesies is the coming of the Messiah, who we know is to be Jesus. So this is 520 B.C., Jesus didn't come till 30 A.D., so we're looking at 550 years after this was written before it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But it sounds exactly like Jesus. We'll get into that as we get to verses 9 through 13. So first of all, read with me verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, talking about Jesus. Righteous, having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, let's stop there because verses 9 and 10 have been the source 
of a lot of debate between Christianity and Judaism. And I'll explain why when we get there. Now this verse, verses 9 and 10, most, one of the most significant passages of the Old Testament. The Jews see these two verses as the basis for a royal Messiah, not a suffering Messiah, not a dying Messiah, but a royal, regal, kingly Messiah. So that's why they say Messiah hasn't come yet. Jesus couldn't be it. He wasn't royal and, and regal and majestic and wasn't a military commander. So it couldn't have been Christ. So they see this as the basis for a royal Messiah. Christianity, on the other hand, we see this as the prophecy of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, right before his crucifixion. You know, they laid the palm branches and Hosanna, and he's riding on a donkey making his entrance. So that's how we see it. Jews don't see it that way. So the, the one coming, the king, is a descendant of David. We both agree on that. Humble. They don't believe so as much. We believe riding as a victor into his capital city of Jerusalem. Now let's look more closely at these two verses and see why Christianity and Judaism is different on these two. First of all, notice the command at the beginning of verse 9. Rejoice! The Israelites are told to rejoice. Good times are here. Now, put yourself in the minds and situation of those people hearing this for the first time. Remember, they're the ones that just came back from Babylon. They are the ones, nothing is going well. I mean, it's a bunch of charred rubble. The land's horrible. It's all burned and pillaged and it's hard to make a living and it's hard to build your own houses and, there, and you have a drought and there's not much money and it's mostly the senior adults who came back and they can't work as hard on the building and it just, it's a depressing time. And Zechariah looks at these depressed people and says, rejoice! And they're probably going, yeah, why? Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, Jerusalem. Notice he doesn't say daughters, plural. He says, daughter singular, which means he's probably talking about the whole nation. Rejoice. Why? Your king's coming. We don't have a king. Oh, oh yes, you do. You have more than a king. You have a Messiah. Your king is coming to you. And so the first part of verse 9 contains three figures of speech. Zion and Jerusalem are personified as people, shouting. Number two, he named the city rather than the people. He didn't say, rejoice Israel. He says, Jerusalem. And third of all, he used Jerusalem to represent the entire nation of Israel. So, three figures of speech that he uses there. And this king is going to have righteous, he's going to be righteous and have salvation in his hand. So the world's Peace depends upon a Savior bringing salvation. So for those in our culture today who are looking to bring peace worldwide, it's never going to come until the Savior comes with salvation. Then peace will appear. Now, says he's going to be humble. Your king's coming to you, righteous having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. 
Now stop for a moment. Where did we end in verse 8? Alexander the Great, he's not humble. He's proud. He's arrogant. He cried because there were no more kingdoms to conquer. I want to conquer even more of them. He had the whole world. He wasn't humble. He was proud. And he was arrogant. And he was in control. And God switches now to a king who's coming greater than Alexander. He was humble. Not proud. Not arrogant. He's humble. Not boastful. Most military leaders of the kingdoms of the world of that time were arrogant and boastful and let you know nobody's more powerful than they are. Sennacherib of Assyria who conquered Israel. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon that captured Judah. Alexander the Great. They're all three boastful and arrogant and proud. And God says, Israel, a king's coming to you who will rule the world, who's humble. Riding on a donkey. So contrast verse 9 now with the first eight verses of chapter 9. Alexander the Great. And you have Jesus. Notice how he's described, mounted on a, a donkey. In the ancient Near East, it was common for rulers to ride donkeys. It wasn't unusual. It's mentioned in Judges 5, Judges 10, Judges 12, 2 Samuel 6, 1 Kings 1. So it's not unusual for a king to ride a donkey. When they're bringing peace. But whenever they're going to war, they ride a horse. Jesus, when he comes the second time, is riding a horse. We saw that in Revelation. When he returns, riding a white horse. But the first time he comes, he's riding a donkey. So the first time Jesus comes, he's coming in peace. He's bringing us peace. He's bringing us peace with God because we're at war with God through our sin. He's bringing us peace. The second time he comes... He's on a horse, and he's coming with war. Now, notice that this humble king would be riding a gentle donkey. Uh, some people say the donkey wasn't so gentle because the New Testament tells us whenever Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he was riding a donkey that had never been ridden. That means he was not broken. You ever ridden a donkey that's not broken? They're not gentle. So some people make a lot out of that. Some people don't. But why did it say a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey? That's an odd phrase, isn't it? Most Bible scholars believe that is mentioned because it is talking about a donkey's colt was a purebred donkey. Uh, in other words, one born of a female donkey rather than a mule so letting us know this colt that Jesus was riding on was a purebred donkey, not a descendant of a mule. So it, that's why a lot of commentators think that it stops to distinguish. Saying here, a colt, the foal of a donkey, let us know it's purebred that he was riding. Now, if you go to verse 10, it's interesting. Because in verse 10, it says... I will cut off 
the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. Now, before we get there, let me mention one more thing about verse 9. Notice Alexander, when he wrote in, he inspired fear. He made everybody fear and tremble because he was about to capture you. But when Jesus wrote in, he inspired joy. Shouts of joy. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. And then whenever he rides in, they're shouting in the palm branches, Hosanna, who comes in, hail to the king. And it's joy. So when Jesus as a king comes, he inspires joy while all the others inspired fear. A good distinction. And that day Jesus rode in on the donkey, the Palm Sunday, and the crowd shouted. Roman spectators probably wondered why all the commotion. Because his entrance did not compare with that of Julius Caesar whenever he returned back to Rome after defeating Gaul. He had a three-day celebration when he rode back in. And he brought the spoils, and he brought the bodies of captured soldiers and he brought the bodies of dead soldiers and hung them on the wall and everybody cheered. But this shows Jesus was a different kind of king. Even the disciples didn't get it at first. He's a different kind of king all the way through here. You see, he's not like earthly kings. He's different. He's a king who brings peace. Now notice in verse 10, this verse gives us a second reason for rejoicing, the establishment of the king's kingdom. So verse 9 is about the king coming, 10 is about his kingdom. Now, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from, from Ephraim, war horse from Jerusalem, battle bow shall be cut off, he shall speak peace to the nations, he'll rule from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. Folks, when Jesus came the first time, that didn't happen. That did not happen. Now, it sounds like what's going to happen when he comes the second time. But it didn't happen the first time. So evidently, verse 9 is talking about his first coming and verse 10, his second coming. But now the Jews say, aha, why do you Christians say that? It's talking all about his first coming. So Jesus did not fulfill verse 10. So the Messiah hasn't come yet. So what we know is verse 9 was his first coming and there's a big gap of time period between verse 9 and verse 10. Because verse 10 perfectly describes the second coming from Revelation, doesn't it? So that's why Jews say you Christians are wrong. Other Jews say no, there are going to be two Messiahs. So there, is, there are sects, of uh, groups that have developed within Judaism that teach there will be two messiahs. One from verse 9, one from verse 10. One who's humble, mounted on a donkey, and one who comes as a conquering warrior. So you have both. You have two. Even the Qumran community, remember Dead Sea Scrolls? They believed in two messiahs. And so there are groups even today of Jews. If you've ever read that or heard that, there, there will be two messiahs. That's where it comes from. One from verse 9 and one from verse 10. But here's something I find interesting. Someone may say, well, aren't the Jews right? Jesus didn't fulfill both. 
Notice something. Verse 9 is present tense. Verse 10 is future tense. Did you notice that? Verse 9, behold, your king is coming to you. Present tense, riding, mounted on a donkey. Rejoice, rejoice. Verse 10, I will cut off the, war, the chariot and the battle bow. And he shall speak peace to the nation. And he shall rule. Future tense. What's interesting in Hebrew all the way through verses 9 through 17, the tenses change. Confuses Bible scholars. It'll be present tense. It'll be future tense. It'll be perfect tense. The tenses change. So it appears like nine's present tense. Jesus is here. And ten is he will come again in the future tense. So interesting, the gospel writers did not quote verse 10. Did you notice that? As they're talking about Jesus coming, they quoted verse 9, him coming on a donkey. Then he quote verse 10. So it's like the gospel writers even knew that as well. Now whenever he says, it's just kind of a side note, it's kind of interesting from verse 10. Whenever he says the chariot, the war horse, and the battle bow, those represented the whole arsenal that, were, that was used in ancient warfare during that time period. So this passage is implying every complete destruction of every piece of weaponry the ancient world knew at that time. They knew uh, chariots, they knew war horses, which was revolutionary to use a, war, a horse in battle, and the battle bow. And that's all they knew at the time. And so he uses all three as a metaphor to say, every piece of arsenal you know, I'll get rid of, I'll destroy. And there will be complete destruction. His dominion would be worldwide. Contrast this now with Alexander the Great from verses 1 through 8. Alexander the Great conquered from the north to India. Jesus will conquer the world. So his kingdom is even greater than that of Alexander's. So verses 9 and 10, I spent more time there just because these two verses are vitally important to Judaism and Christianity as to the seeing of the Messiah's coming. That's just why we believe in two comings, and that's why they only believe in one coming, and why some believe in two messiahs, because they look vastly different. We just know Jesus came in peace the first time. He'll come in power to reign the second time. And Revelation makes this clear. Let's go to verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So he appears now to be talking about the end times, the millennial kingdom when God will, Jesus will rule. And he says, I will make a blood covenant with you. Now think about that. Blood sacrifices in the Old Testament ratified covenants. Ratified the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15. Blood ratified the Mosaic covenant, Exodus 24. And Jesus says, I'm making a new covenant with you, ratified in blood. Whose blood? His. So his blood, the blood sacrifice of Jesus, would ratify the new covenant. So what he's talking about, verse 11. It's for you because of the blood of my covenant with you. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. 
God had promised to set free those from whom the enemies would hold prisoners like Israel had been in Babylon. And he used the imagery, it's interesting, of pulling them out of a well. When did that happen in the Old Testament? Twice. You remember Joseph, brothers threw him in a well. In Genesis 37, he was pulled out of the well to be the one to save his people, didn't he? Had been for Joseph that had perished in Egypt. And then the second time was Jeremiah in chapter 38. They pulled, they threw Jeremiah in the well, angry at him. But they revived him and rescued him out of the well. And he was the one that went into exile with them as the one who was their leader. And now you have Jesus at the end times rescuing those symbolically in the pit and pulling them out again as their savior. So again, he uses the imagery of pulling them out of a waterless pit or a dry well, which already happened twice. Go to verse 12. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. So here are a group of Israelites broken and beaten and discouraged and Zechariah's trying to encourage them. And he's saying the Messiah is going to come to you and to your people. He's going to bring peace. He's going to destroy all your enemies and you are going to be a people of glory once again. But first, he would have to destroy the enemies, Israel's enemies, which he said in Psalm 110 that he would do. So God will call forth the Israelite prisoners of other nations to set them free and return back to Israel, their stronghold, which happened in 1948 and continues to happen today. And he said, I will restore double to you what the enemy took from you. So whenever the Assyrians marched in and took the north and Babylonians marched in and took the south and took away all their stuff, God's going to give it back to them double whenever he restores them. Whenever something in the Old Testament was restored double, it meant complete restoration. Job was restored double, chapter 42. Remember everything Job lost? God gave him all twice back. Isaiah 40, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 61, God restored double. It means complete blessing. So he's telling Israel, you hang in there because your complete double portion blessing is coming. Verse 13. For I have bent Judah as my bow, and I've made Ephraim its arrow, and I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So as you look at verse 13, it's interesting because God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is pictured as a divine warrior. It's different from the verse 9. He's humble and on a donkey there. Now he's a divine warrior. And he's using Israel as a weapon to subdue the nations. And he says, Judah, you're my bow. Ephraim, you're my arrow. And I'm going to shoot it and I'm going to have completely destroy your enemies. enemies. I'm going to use you to do it. What do we study in Revelation Israel's victor at the last. 
Watch those who side with Israel. God will bless those who side with Israel. We saw that in Revelation. And here, again, God is in complete control, complete command of Israel's affairs. What did he mean, though, at the end of verse 13, where he says, I will pit my soldiers against Greece's soldiers? Interesting. First of all, whenever Zechariah wrote... There is no nation called Greece. Zechariah is probably writing this going, against your soldiers Greece, I have no idea who that is, but I'll write it. There wasn't a nation. There was Ionia at the time. They were mercenaries in the Egyptian army going all the way back to Exodus. But Greece wasn't a country. It wasn't a country until later. But God prophesied, I'll set my soldiers against your soldiers, O Greece. And I'll eventually win. Now, if you remember history, about a hundred years before Jesus came, so we're talking about 300 years or 400 years from this time period, whenever Greece controlled the region, the Romans came in, if you remember, the Jews revolted against them. An old priest, Maccabeus and the Maccabean revolt, because they were, they were offended at being, the, you know, the, the desecration of abomination of desolation that offended on the altar there. And they revolted and they defeated a lot. They were eventually defeated. But the Maccabean revolt was Israel's, one of their best stands against Greece and Rome. And maybe he was referring to that partial victory and then the later one, complete victory would come later. Some people believe in verse 13, we see kind of a foreshadowing of the Maccabean revolt. Very interesting. Read about it. Google it. It's very interesting. The Maccabean revolt in Israel could be verse 13. Let's go to uh, letter C on your outline and we'll close. Verses 14 and 17. Letter C on your outline, the Lord will save his people. Verse 14. Then the Lord will appear over them. This is still all at the end times. And his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. So God used the analogy of a storm to describe the end times and how he would defeat all the nations. He used the analogy of a powerful thunderstorm. Now, the Israelites would know about powerful thunderstorms because every now and then, it's a very dry area, but every now and then, boy, they got them. Storms that come in from the Sahara, and I mean, it was bad. still does. In this, it still does today. Sorokin winds blow in. I mean, you think Lubbock's bad when the wind starts blowing and the sand starts blowing around. It is really bad. And so they knew powerful thunderstorms. And all you can do whenever there's a powerful thunderstorm is seek shelter. You can't fight against it. You just have to seek shelter. Same with us. We're in a powerful thunderstorm. There's nothing we can fight against it. You just seek shelter. What do they tell you on the weather? Seek shelter. So here's the analogy. At the end, I will appear over all the nations against you, Israel, as a powerful thunderstorm. They don't fight back against me. They can't. All they can do is try to, try to run and hide. Because he said... The Lord God will sound the trumpet. 
Back in biblical days, whenever armies marched into battle, they sounded the trumpet. Whenever the trumpet blew, the forces assembled, and there they went. God's saying, I'll appear over all your enemies. The arrow will go forth like lightning. God will sound the trumpet and march forth into the whirlwinds, those Sorokin winds of the south. Now, quick question. What is the difference, and I've been asked this question before, maybe you have too. What is the difference between Muslims' jihad, Islam's jihad, and God's holy war? It's a difference. I mean, we condemn jihad, right? Both the Bible and the Quran have concepts of holy war. This is it. God's going to make holy war against all the nations around and Israel will be spared. What's the difference between the Islamic jihad that we say is not right and God's holy war? I've been asked that before several times. Good question. The difference is the Quran commands good Muslims to carry out jihad. God never commands his people to do it. God will do it, bring judgment, bring vengeance upon those who reject him and all the nations that reject Israel's God. And judgment will come, but God does it. We don't do it. God does it. We don't do any of it. God does it. But the Quran says it is the responsibility of every good Muslim to carry out jihad themselves. The Bible never commands that. It does tell us God will sound the trumpet and he will defeat the nations. And Israel and only those who believe Jesus is Savior and Lord, he will save his people. doesn't mean Israel is going to heaven. They must receive Jesus as well. But he's, he saves initially the country of Israel. And then we must know Christ as Savior. Verse 15. The Lord of hosts will protect them. For the, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. What in the world is he talking about? The Lord is, will defend Israel, cause them to be victorious over their enemies, and the death of these enemies will be a sacrifice to God, those that reject him. They'll be a sacrifice to God. Now, what on earth are the sling stones? Well, a couple of theories. Uh, one theory is that, you know, the slingshot that David defeated Goliath with, those were known as, they had been known as slingers. They would put a, a rock in, and it wasn't like our slingshot. It was a long piece of, of, of some type of a, something elastic and then cloth in there. They put the stone in there to sling it round, round, round like that. At the right time, they would release it. And the rock itself would be like a bullet, like a 45 caliber bullet hitting you. Goliath didn't have a chance, by the way. A bullet would, would hit. The slingers were so good, they got so proficient at knowing it being such marksmen, they could knock a bird out of air flight, knock a bird out of the air. And so they were called slingers. Some people believe this is referring to the slingers who will, but most likely, it's talking about treading down the sling stones. Something else known as slingers. The stones they rocked, walked on were called sling stones. 
So it could be referring to something you walked on. And it sounds probably more like it. The Lord of hosts will protect them and devour and tread down those that walk on the sling stones. They shall get drunk and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. Look at verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. Talking about Israel. As the flock of his people, like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Now, if you're an old Jew who's just made it back 1,200 miles from Babylon and you're, and you're trying to make sense of this rubble and Zechariah says, you know, there's coming a day God's going to save you and you're going you're to be like flock in his, in his, a sheep in his flock and you're going to be like crowns in his, uh, jewels in his crown, man, that would encourage you, wouldn't it? That God told you. You, he, you'll experience deliverance like a flock of sheep protected by a shepherd. And, and you will be so precious and so beautiful in God's land. You're going to be like jewels in a crown that circle the hills of Jerusalem. And you'll not be the sling stones anymore. You'll be the, you'll be the jewels in the crown. Wow, how encouraging that must be to you. So that's what's going to happen in the end. Verse 17. For how great is his goodness and how great is beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. So Israel's going to be an attractive people. They'll enjoy the best of the land, the best of food and drink. They didn't have that in Babylon, but they'll enjoy it there. And among all the human beings of the earth, they will prosper and have abundance. Any time in Scripture you see grain and new wine, they are symbols of prosperity and blessing, something the Jews had not known for years. God says, you hang in there. As my people, you will be victorious. That's a good word for us too. Whatever you're going through, you hang in there too. As God's people, we're victorious. We'll pick up next week with chapter 10 where God restores the land even more. We'll talk about that. Uh, chapter 10 next week. If you have any questions or comments, see me afterwards. Feel free to email me. I'll be glad to hear from you. Let's pray together and we'll close. God, I want to thank you tonight that you love your people the way that you do. Thank you that as our Messiah, you came first of all in peace to bring us peace with you. And then second of all, you will return as a conquering warrior. God saving your people, bringing judgment upon those who don't know you. Father, before you get here, help us to be those who share your good news so more people can come to know you. Thank you for loving us the way you do. Thank you for what you're teaching us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.